All right, good morning. Sorry for the little bit of a tech switch over. We're running a different tech setup because of our broken projector here this morning, but we've got it all up and running. Thanks, Alex, for helping with that. And uh, as we turn from that moment of silence and that commemoration to uh, God's Word, then I hope that today's uh, sermon will inspire you and will motivate you to be even more serious about kind of focusing on what is it that are we are called to in this culture to really live up to the, the things that people were fighting for when they fought to make sure that we could remain free in our, in our country and that the church could be the church. Um, for those who uh, are not familiar, which I think is probably not a huge number of people, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning that I'm Ben. I was one of the pastors here and have uh, transitioned out of that role and I'm working with First Nations people and students at Trent University as a full-time faith-supported ministry. Uh, And uh, as part of my ministry, I provide spiritual support for Trent students through Trent Spiritual Affairs and a group called Christians for Trent. And what's interesting is that Trent as a university, just just up here uh, down the road a little bit, has a real reputation for being a very secular school and being very anti-Christian in the way that it thinks and the way that it teaches. Uh, It wasn't founded as a Christian school. It was really founded as a secular institution back in the 1960s. uh, And that is reflected in the way that they construct things and the way that their academic life unfolds. And occasionally, uh, I get asked the question, Ben, as you're doing ministry at Trent, do you face a lot of opposition? Do you face a lot of resistance because of the fact that you're a Christian trying to do ministry in that context. But the truth is, I actually have a really good relationship with the administration, that the school does have some recognition that spirituality as a category is a good thing, and I think I've been able to earn trust by investing a lot of time and energy into serving students in practical ways, as well as providing those spiritual supports. Uh, And so I actually have a really good time at Trent working to serve students there. The greatest challenge that I face is millennials. <laughs> and and, and I, I hear a couple of laughs as I say that. Uh, the truth is that millennials are the brunt of a lot of jokes uh, because of the fact that we recognize that to some degree, these millennials are a little bit of a strange creature in our midst. And I apologize to those of you who are millennials. I actually am a millennial, but kind of the very first end of that generation. Uh, and uh, I recognize that often we treat this topic flippantly and we, we laugh at the next generation when instead we probably should slow down and really understand what's going on. But the truth is that millennials really are a different sort of creature because of the fact that they are the product of a very different culture in the middle of our culture. The explosion of new communications technology allows them to be exposed to a much greater range of worldviews than was previously possible. Uh, And because of that, they have just this weird hodgepodge of all sorts of different ideas and beliefs that kind of mix together uh, and often look very different than what we have traditionally thought of as a good Life, And I admit that, again, even though I am a millennial, because I was at the front end of that generation and because I was raised in the church, often I am a little bit confused by the lifestyle that millennials lead. Um, it, It does cause me to pull out what little hair I have on my head when I encounter students who can't stop fighting via text message with their partner. Uh, or they spend all of their meal money on Starbucks instead of the food that they need to nourish them. Or they go through a series of really broken romantic relationships without seeming to realize there is another option, right? That you can actually stop being part of that cycle. Uh, And 
And this wasn't my story at all. And for the life of me, I do not understand why anybody would choose to go through those things, <laughs> right? And so this is a little bit of a challenge as I, as I work with millennials. Sometimes I'm just like, I do not understand the decisions that you are making. However, however, I am deeply glad to be entrusted with a ministry to millennials and those who come after them because I see one thing that stands out, which is they really do want older people investing in their lives so that they can have some assistance as they try to figure out what it means to be a Christian in this strange new world that we live in. And so over and over and over again, when I choose to invest myself in the life of millennials, it is received with this open arms saying, yes, please, I want somebody there to help me navigate these things. And because of that, I, I am deeply grateful that I have gotten that trust from so many young people in our culture today. Now, I start off by saying all of this because uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at as we continue in our series on Colossians, I think speaks a lot to some of the struggles that we have with millennials in this culture. Some of the reasons why the church really struggles to get their heads around what it looks like to do ministry to them. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today is this passage from Colossians that speaks to how we handle this kind of cultural gap that exists between faithful people. Uh, and I want to I add in there, there's a little bit of a warning that I'm going to do some deep analysis of the church culture that we are part of. And I may end up saying something that sounds a little bit off. Uh, I'm trying to walk a pretty fine line here to nuance things carefully. Uh, and so if you're not sure about something I say, please don't be afraid to come ask me afterwards to clarify or to challenge me a little bit, because this is something I'm still very much working through in my own thinking. So I give that caveat as we begin to look at the passage. But we're going to start in Colossians 2 verse 16, and we're going to go into ver uh, chapter 3 a little bit. So starting in Colossians 2 16, if you want to open your Bibles with me, I have uh, the, the, the the verse up on the screen in a minute. And as we look over this section of scripture, uh, we're going to have four guiding questions that I think will help enlighten what we can do with this passage in our context today. The first one is what conflict was taking place in the church of Colossae? That's the, the, the context of this passage. There's a conflict that's taking place that Paul is trying to address. And so then the second question is, then how did Paul go about addressing that conflict that was going on? Then I want to turn to saying, well, okay, what similar conflicts are we facing in the church today? And this goes back to this idea of millennials, and we'll talk a little bit further about that. And then finally, how can we address those conflicts in a way that is faithful to the way that Paul was addressing those conflicts in his day back 2,000 years ago? And, and my thesis, the thing that I'm going to ultimately try and convince you of today, is that like the Colossian church, we need to discern what it means to be Christ-like today— instead of simply adopting the good rules that God gave the people who came before us. I'll say that again. We, like the Colossian church, we need to discern what it means to be Christ-like today instead of simply adopting the good rules that God has given the people who came before us. So that's where I'm going with this passage. All right, let's take a look at the passage before we dive into those questions. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, up until 3 verse 4. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It is with Christ you died to the eternal spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perished as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, so a loaded passage, lots of things in there. And again, as we go through it, we've got these guiding questions that I'd like to go through. And the first is just to address what is the conflict taking place in the church of Colossae that Paul is trying to address here. And the, the simple answer is that like many of the New Testament churches, there was a conflict over how Jewish and Gentile Christians should fit together within the church. To explain that, let me provide a little bit of context. You see, Jesus was originally a Jew. And when he came and died and was resurrected, it was originally the Jews who kind of adopted the fact that this was the Messiah that they were looking for. And he instructed them, those, those early Jews, to go out and be witnesses throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This was a bit of a messy process, and if you read the book of Acts, you see that there was lots of starts and stops along the way, but ultimately, they succeeded in this mission. And the message that Jesus Christ is Lord went out throughout the entire region to all of the different racial groups that existed throughout that region. And as a result, it raised a challenge. For the first time, Jews were worshipping alongside non-Jews. Now, this might not seem like a big deal today because we live in a pluralistic culture that says no matter what race, no matter what ethnic background you're from, you're loved, you're lovable, we should just get along. But this really cuts against the swath of what early Jews understood about their, their calling as people. They really understood that they were to remain a distinct group of people, and the Gentiles were often the people they defined themselves over and against. And there's good reason for that. You see, the Gentiles are people who actually invaded Israel and took the Jews out of their homeland, away from the place that they felt like they were supposed to worship God. And they really persecuted the Jews and treated them like they were second-class citizens in a number of different ways, uh, and the Jews felt the weight of that intolerance that had been leveled against them. Alongside that, more foundationally, the Jews understood that all of the Gentile nations had drifted into idolatry that they had forgotten the fact that they were created by the one true God, and because of that, they worshipped all of these other beings that misled them into lifestyles and sacrifices and forms of worship that were, were just deplorable to God. Uh, and so we see that the Jews really identified themselves as those who worshipped the one true God, not the idolaters like the Gentiles. That was very much a core part of the Jewish way of thinking. And as a sign of this, there were certain things that really came to define the first century Jew. One of them is the holy days that they practiced. Every Saturday they called it the Shabbat, and that was a day set aside to rest and to worship the one true God. And alongside that, periodically throughout the year, 
there were holidays that were meant to celebrate the things that God had done for the nation of Israel. And they believed that these holy days set them apart from the nations around them. Alongside that, they practiced certain food laws, where they would and wouldn't eat certain kinds of meat, and the meat had to be prepared in a very particular sort of way in order to, to be consumable to them, to represent the cleanliness and the holiness that they had over and against the vile nations around them. And then there's this thing of circumcision that we don't have to go too much into detail on. I think you get that. But it set them apart by visibly differentiating them from the nations around them. And these things, the holy days, the food laws, and circumcision were considered to be primary markers of Jewish identity. Alongside that, we see that in between the Old and New Testament, there's a couple hundred year gap in there, and we see that there's a lot of debate about what other things should be markers of identity for the Jews. And you get some really interesting books that are written where they're talking about messenger angels and the fact that we owe them some sort of patronage. Or you get these ideas that, you know, your lineage becomes a very important part of identifying yourself as a Jew. Sometimes you got people who said, we're just going to cut ourselves totally off from the world and live these ascetic lifestyles, right? And so there's a lot of debate within Judaism about what it really looks like to be a faithful Jew alongside these three differentiating identity markers that all of them agreed on. And so, again, the whole thrust of this is that for the first century Jew, their lifestyle, their faith, was very much interwoven in not being a Gentile. And so then out goes this message that Jesus is Lord, and by miracle of miracles, the, the, the Gentiles actually respond better than the Jews do. <laughs> Right? We actually see that the Gentiles come in droves to worship this Messiah, whereas the Jewish community is really split over whether or not they can consider him the Messiah. And so suddenly you have all of these idolaters who are eating the wrong foods, they're not practicing the holy days, they're not circumcised, and they're, they're in our midst and doing all of these things that we consider Christians, but not the things that set the Jews apart. And so there's a real rift in the early church about how this should be handled. And one group of people thought they need to become Jews. That if a Gentile is really going to follow Jesus, they need to take on all of these identity markers that we just talked about. Yeah, even that one. <laughs> okay? And, 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 and that was something that was really seriously held by a certain group of people, that, that the Gentiles, to become worshipping Christians, had to really take on the markers of Judaism. Um, but there's another group of people who said, no, that's not true. And at the forefront of that was a man named Paul, who we consider an apostle. And alongside that, the other apostles, Peter and James and the others who, who Jesus had appointed as his earliest leaders, they, they really came to a consensus that no, the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. There were certain things that they asked them not to do that would have been utterly deplorable, but for the most part, they said there is a distinctly Gentile way of being a Christian that's different than the Jewish way of being Christian. So this was kind of the consensus that begins to emerge. And again, if you read the book of Acts, you actually see this plays a central role in the history of the early church, is trying to figure out how do we handle this, this new thing where Gentiles and Jews are worshiping alongside each other. And I think this is what Paul is referring to in this passage. So then, how does Paul address this conflict in this particular case? And, and my summary of what Paul says in this set of verses is basically, if Christ has already rescued you from your former idolatry and made you part of his body and granted you eternal life, you don't need to follow the instructions that God gave to somebody else. I'll say that again. He says, if Christ has rescued you from your idolatry 
If he's made you part of his body, if he's granted you eternal life, then you don't need to follow the instructions that God gave somebody else to point them in that direction. And there are two aspects of how he develops this argument that I want to highlight. The first is that he has this phrase that he uses about the Jewish identity markers. And what he says is that they're the shadow of things to come. Now, I think this is important because there's two things going on here. One is that he is not saying that those markers are unimportant. Just the opposite. He's actually saying these things that God gave the Jews are very important to who the Jews are, and they were given to them to give them a pointer towards Jesus Christ, their Messiah. So he's affirming the goodness of all of these identity markers that we just talked about. But at the same time, he contextualizes them. He says that these commandments were given for a particular time and place for a particular group of people to help them have faith. But he's saying that doesn't mean that they were meant to be universally binding, that everybody has to follow these things, right? And so this is really what he does with the Jewish commandments. He says they're the shadow of things to come, which means they're good. They had a very important role to play in the life of uh, God's people, but ultimately they are not meant to be universally binding. And, And we see then he builds on this and he says, Here's what I do want you to do, those of you who are Gentiles in the church. I want you to seek the things that are above. Right? The analogy that comes to mind when I think about what he's saying here is that it's like the launching of a rocket. If you're designing a rocket trying to get it to the moon, then your focus needs to be picking the right trajectory from the place that you are in currently. If you use somebody else's calculations, if we try to launch a rocket today and we use the calculations they used back 40 years ago when they first started launching rockets to the moon, then I think you're going to end up with a rocket that gets nowhere near the moon, (laughs) right? The, The thing that you need to do when you're launching a rocket is understand where are we at right now. Our goal is the same, but we're going to have to take a slightly different approach because the trajectory is going to be a little different from where we are today than where we were 40 years ago. And this is what Paul seems to be telling the Colossians, right? That he says, you don't need to hold on to the identity markers that once set Israel apart. What you need to do is you need to focus on building Christ-likeness. That you need to be able to actually look and say, Christ has given us access to this salvation, and now we need to let that shape our lives today. And there's going to be some things that from our old lifestyle need to go away. And there's going to be other things that we are going to press into to say this is part of what it means to be Christ-like in our context, right? And this is very much what he's calling them to, is he's saying, I want you to reflect on the things that are above, the, the salvation that God has set aside for you, and from that point of reflection, begin to live out your life as Christians, as Christ followers today. Don't hold on to those things that once allowed the, uh, the, the community of faith to define themselves. Instead, focus on building identity markers that reflect your salvation here and now. And I, I do think it's really important to stress, like a rocket that goes off to the moon, it has to shed things along the way, right? So there's a lot of things that we see that Paul says just can't be part of your faith as you try and serve God. And actually, next week's passage will deal with some of those things that just need to be gotten rid of if you're really going to be a faithful Christian, period, right? They just have no place in God's kingdom. So the point here isn't that Paul is saying anything goes. The point here is that he's saying some of the old identity markers no longer should define you. Your trajectory needs to be based on where you're at today so that you too can arrive at Christ-likeness. Does that make sense? 
So this is how Paul addresses the conflict that's going on in the church of Colossae then, is that he looks at them and he, he validates the Jewish identity markers while still contextualizing them and telling the Gentile Christians, you now need to build new identity markers that will point you too towards Christ-likeness. So then, when I turn to today, the question that I ask is, what are some of the similar conflicts that we are facing today? The truth is, we are in the middle of a rapidly changing culture, and we need to understand a little bit about what has led to those shifts and some of the things that have, have caused tension as those shifts are taking place. And so I think, actually, it's important to stop and reflect on what we often think of as Christianity today, which I would use the word evangelicalism to describe that. Uh, but to understand that, we need to understand what evangelicalism is. You see, the church played a really central role in Western culture for a lot of years, for centuries, right? It was taken for granted within Europe that everyone was a Christian. And when the settlers came over from Europe to North America, the same assumption was carried over. Unfortunately, the way that they did that often was bound up in a real state-driven authoritarian way of enforcing Christianity. And so there was a lot of religious wars that took place in Europe. And when settlers came over to North America, they brought a lot of that conflict with them. Although there was groups of people who said, we're just going to get away from that and try and create some sort of safe space where we don't have those same kinds of religious wars. And so we see that there is this thrust to create a Christian society and that sometimes that was really good. But sometimes it led to really bloody conflicts. And a lot of people would actually point to World War I as kind of the climax of that really authoritarian way of viewing Christian culture. That there was really a thrust to say, uh, you know, we are going to create these great empires that are going to establish God's reign on earth. And that led to the, one of the bloodiest conflicts that's ever taken place in history. And, and because of that, Western culture really began to move away from its Christian roots. To say, well, if this is what Christianity leads to, if it leads to all of this violence, if it leads to all of this destruction, we want no part in it. Uh, and so we see that for much of the 20th century, Christianity begins to fade away as the guiding core of our culture. Uh, and, and what begins to replace it is this thing called secularism, where, where people just kind of embrace everything and anything while kind of rejecting the big picture religious beliefs that used to once to guide them, right? And in the midst of this, in North America, a, a movement began called fundamentalism. And fundamentalists said, we can't let our culture go this way. We are going to fight to preserve the core Christian values and beliefs that we have held on to throughout the centuries. And so, and so they began this movement of trying to start their own schools and trying to start their own institutions that said, we're, we're going to fight for the Christian faith. And this was kind of a scattered movement that existed throughout North America. And then there was one man who played a really important role in the history of this, and that's a man named Billy Graham. You guys have probably heard of him. <laughs> Billy Graham was what largely is considered to be the great uniter of these different groups of people that were called fundamentalists. He used the word evangelical to refer to the gospel, the evangel, and, and, and he said that what we need to be bound around is the belief in God and in the Bible, and we need to be united across all of our different movements. And so he went around preaching through North America and largely brought together a whole lot of Christians who were resisting the direction that the culture was going. 
And out of this man's ministry and the people that followed in his footsteps, then there, there was really a movement that defined itself in a very particular way. It had strong identity markers that it contended for over and against the way that the culture at the time was going. I want to consider three examples. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but three examples of things that became defining features of evangelicalism as a movement. The first is the idea that the way we convert people is by preaching to them in the middle of a gathering, right? And this is very much modeled off of Billy Graham's own crusades where he would gather groups of people together and preach the gospel to them, and people came back in droves as a result. And this is really central to how evangelicals design their faith, right? We have church buildings that are frontward facing with a preacher who gets up and speaks, as we're doing right now. Uh, And we have communities that really see the heart of their life together as gathering once a week to hear that kind of preaching, right? And again, the preaching itself often has a thrust that says you need to place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's really kind of the, the direction of the preaching that evangelicalism focuses itself on. Another, another thing that defines evangelicalism is a real focus on what I would call private morality, that you as a person need to actually live a good moral life in order to reflect the fact that God has set us apart from the culture around us. And there's a real focus on avoiding corrupting influences, that there are certain things that we ought not to do because they will lead us astray and cause us to wane in our faith. And so this is something that is focused on a lot within evangelicalism. A third thing is upholding the nuclear family as the foundation of society and really trying to build strong, healthy families. This is something that you see preached and taught. We see institutions like Focus on the Family that are given over to trying to make sure that we can build strong, healthy nuclear families, right? And these are all things that I think come to define evangelicalism throughout the 20th century, especially the latter portion of the 20th century, and I think it's very important to acknowledge these are good things. That these things actually allowed in North America the descent from Christianity into secularism to be slowed down quite a bit. The church did a really good job of calling people back to their Christian roots, and we can see that in North America the descent has been much slower than it has throughout much of Europe, right? These identity markers really did set aside faithful Christians and allow them to live a strong, moral, family-centered life that reflected God's will. So I think these things are really, really good, and I'm glad that I was raised in a context that valued these different things. At the same time, we do have to recognize that you don't have to go super far back in history to see that there were times when the church identified itself very differently than focusing on these things. There was lots of other identity markers that did define the church historically. And I think we need to be careful about saying this is the only way to be Christian because then we kind of write off every other movement that has existed that wasn't defined by these same things. And ultimately, the thrust of where I'm going with this is that we also need to recognize that for whatever reason, these identity markers don't seem to be striking a chord with the next generation. And there's lots of good studies that have been done to show that youth within the church are walking away, and that evangelicalism is no, uh, no uh, exception to that. That young people have said, these things do not answer the questions that I am facing within my world, right? That they look and they say, I can't come together to hear a gospel sermon every week because my friends aren't even willing to come to church with me. 
They look and say, it's good and fine that I have to live a privately moral life, but I'm being asked how the church can address all of the ugly things going on with our society, and I don't hear a real good societal ethic being preached. They look around and they say, nuclear families are great. I'm glad that I maybe was raised in one and that I have friends that were raised in ones. But I look around and families are a mess, right? That all over the place you have split families and single parent families and you have all sorts of mergings of different styles of families, right? And they say, I'm not sure that it's enough to just say build a healthy family. We need to be able to address some of the, the just range of new ways of doing family that's existing in our context, Right? And here's, here's the question that ultimately I come down to when I look at all of this. I want to I know, is it possible, is it possible that the things that set us apart are going to be different than the things that, send, that set the upcoming generations apart from their peers? Is it possible that what's going to set them apart will need to be a little bit different than the things that set us apart within our generations. And even if you're not fully convinced on this, hear me out, because I think there is a path forward that is maybe a little better than some of the tensions that have existed between those who hold on to those traditional markers and the young people who are trying to run away from them as fast as they can. How can we address these conflicts? Before I say how we can address them, though, I do want to say very clearly two things. One is that the solution is not to give in to our gluttonous culture. The truth is, our culture is saying anything goes. That you can do whatever feels good right here, right now, and there's no consequences to that. And in my work with young people, I think they know that is not working. (laughs) Right? And so the answer to our problems is not to say, oh, we abandon all of the things that have defined us and just go along with whatever comes. That's a bad response. It's not going to help anybody. It's going to hurt us, and it's going to hurt the young people that we're walking alongside. So the answer is not to just say, anything goes, go ahead and go the way of the world. I also think it's important to say, it's not about diminishing how much these things matter to you. One of the interesting themes in the New Testament is that you don't ever see Paul or the other apostles saying, hey, Jews, you should stop practicing the things that set you apart. They do make it very clear they have the freedom to choose how they relate to that, but they also leave a lot of freedoms for Jews to continue to hold on to their traditional identity markers. And to this day, Messianic Jews continue to often practice the food laws and the holy days and, yes, circumcision, right? In fact, in our household, we actually do practice some of the Jewish feasts because of the fact that Shoshana has some Hebrew heritage, and we think it's important for us to connect with that heritage, and to connect with all of the Bible stories that show God's goodness throughout these things, right? So, so just like the Jews in the first century, I don't think we're called to abandon their identity markers or to downplay how important they were to them. I don't think that we in the church today should downplay the importance of the identity markers that God has given us. We should be willing to share, here's the things that God has done to help me in my, my faith and to help our churches stay strong in the middle of a culture that's abandoning Christianity. Right? That, that is very much part of this dialogue. The question is, what are we encouraging the next generation to do? That's really the key question, is what are we encouraging them to do? And, and I think when it comes to what we're encouraging them to do, the first thing is we need to encourage them to hold fast to the real core of our faith, which is the story of the God who saves. 
that we have to hold on to the fact that the world is a broken place, that sin has corrupted us, and that we need a Savior, and that that Savior was provided in Jesus Christ who came to die to show us forgiveness and to be able to resurrect again, to earn us eternal life with God, and that ultimately everything we do should be reflective of the fact that he is Lord and that he is going to renew this earth to its original goodness, right? We have to hold on to that story that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview that exists. And I think that the young people I work with all say, yes, that story gives me hope. That story allows me to trust in this God, and we need to point them towards the God who saves. Alongside that, I think we need to get really, really good at listening. And I use this in two senses. One is we need to listen to God. That I think actually we need to spend time praying with him and asking him to speak to us. And we need to help young people get good at that discipline as well. I think we have created such a busy culture that so often we just don't slow down to pay attention to what God is trying to communicate us, to us here and now. And because of that, our reflex is just to go back to the things that we know from before. Rather than really slowing down and saying, God, can you lead me? God, can you lead the young people I walk alongside? Can you show us what you want for us? Right? And alongside that, we need to get really good at listening to each other. And I'm thinking especially intergenerationally in the, when I say this, right? That we need to get really good at being able to talk to young people, to share our stories, but also to listen to their stories and to hear them out when they say, here's all the things I'm going through that are messy and so different than what your story has in it, right? We need to listen. Uh, there's an old adage that I think really applies well in our thinking about intergenerational relationships, which is that we should, we should be quick to listen and slow to judge, Right? And that's very simple, and yet I think it's very, very important that, that reflexively, when you hear young people sharing about what they and their peers are going through, it's so easy to just immediately go, that's bad, that's dangerous, run away! And I think they need to see that we're able to hold on to that instinct and actually slow down and say, let me hear more closely what it is that you are experiencing so that I can speak into that in a loving and committed way instead of running because it's so strange and so scary to me. Does that make sense? Listening is a very important discipline. And then as we listen, as we hear from each other across generations, there's a skill that I think the church needs to develop that I think really, when you look at the founders of evangelicalism, those leaders very much had, which was discernment. That we need to be able to actually identify within our context what is good and godly that we can embrace, that we can throw ourselves into, and where are the things that are just leading us astray, and how can we steer away from those and fight them to actually focus on being the witness to God's kingdom that we're supposed to be, right? And this is something that cannot be developed instantly. Discernment is something that takes years and years and years to form. That as you listen to God, as you talk across differences, as you really discern as a community what it looks like to be a Christian, then you begin to develop this instinct that really is healthy and good that says this is something we should embrace and this is something that we shouldn't. And my experience working with young people is that when I'm able to do that, when I'm able to sit with them and to listen to them and then able to just say, here's a word of precaution, I'm worried that if you follow what your instinct says here, it's not really going to lead you where you think it is, right? That little gentle reminder, be discerning, can actually be totally life-changing for young people. They begin to say, oh, maybe I need to pay closer attention to the decisions that I'm making. 
Maybe I need to work on my discernment the way that this older person has worked on their discernment. Does that make sense? But that, that requires not reacting instantly, but actually slowing down, paying attention, listening, and ultimately developing the skill of really, truly discerning what God wants us to do. And this will get messy at times. If you choose to invest in people who are going through what millennials are going through today, sometimes you're going to be hurting for them. Sometimes you're going to be confused by them. Sometimes you're going to want to throttle them. It will be messy, but it also will be good. Because when we can share in the bonds of peace that exist between us across our differences, and we can say, let's discern things together, it actually opens our eyes to God's kingdom and the things that he wants to do around us in a whole new way. So this is my thesis, that like the Colossian church, we need to discern what it means to be Christ-like today instead of simply adopting the good rules that God gave the people who came before us. Let's try and get good at discerning these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not abandon us to sin, but you pursued us and sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to show us your love and forgiveness and to bring us into relationship with you. And thank you that we can look to the Scriptures to see how you will work across different people groups and across different generations to bring us into line with you in a way that is powerful and shows your kingdom in whatever context we enter into. And so I ask that you'd help us to do that in our time and place in a way that really reflects our confidence in your Spirit's leading and our willingness to get messy with those who really are so different than ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.